For often, far too often, our idea of Jesus is narrowly limited to the kind and gentle man who blessed the children, called on us to love one another and to forgive those who have wronged us. We can forget the same Jesus who did those things is the same Jesus who called the religious leaders of his day a brood of vipers and asked them how they expected to escape the judgment of hell. Same Jesus on two separate occasions was moved with righteous anger and cleared the temple by turning over tables of money changers, knocking down animal pens and shouting for them to stop turning his father's house into a den of thieves. The same Jesus willingly endured a a brutal beating and suffered the death of the cross to pay the penalty for the sins of the world. The same Jesus is described as one day returning on a white horse wearing a robe wet with the blood of his enemies. The same Jesus will strike down the nations with a sword and will rule the world as king over kings and lord over lords. The vision The picture we need to have of Jesus in our minds. It it doesn't come from an artist's rendition of Him. We need a picture of Jesus that comes from God's Word. Specifically, we need the vision of Jesus we see in Isaiah chapter 6. So open your Bible to Isaiah 6 if you haven't already. It's page 521. When you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. Isaiah 6 and 1, I'll read the whole chapter. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of His robe filling the temple. Seraphim were standing above Him, each having six wings. With two, each covered His face. And with two, each covered His feet. And with two, each flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the foundations of the threshold trembled at the voice of Him who called out while the temple was filled with smoke. Then I said, Woe to me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips and live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of armies. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips and your guilt is taken away and atonement is made for your sins. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I. Send me. And he said, Go and tell this people. Keep on listening, but do not understand. Keep on looking, but do not gain knowledge. Make the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull and their eyes blind, so they will not see with their ears, hear, see with their, see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. And then I said, Lord, how long? And he answered, until cities are devastated and without inhabitant, houses are without people, the land is utterly desolate, and the Lord has completely removed the people. And there are many forsaken places in the midst of the land. Yet, there will still be a tenth portion in it. And it will again be subject to burning like a terebinth tree or an oak whose stump remains when it is cut down. The holy seed is its stump. title of the message is Seeing Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father, we love you tonight. You're great and glorious, wonderful and worthy. We're thankful for the opportunity to gather 
Sing your praise to study your word. Open our eyes and, and our hearts tonight to receive what you have for us from this passage. Father, we want to see Jesus high and lifted up. We want our view of who Jesus is and what Jesus is like to be elevated until it matches what we see in your word. Father, culture has an idea of who Jesus is and what Jesus is like. And it's vastly different than what we see here. We want to see Jesus, Father, like Isaiah did. We want to see Jesus like Paul did. We, we want to see Jesus like Moses saw you at the burning bush. We do echo the cry of the, the Greeks who went to the disciples and said, Sir, we want to see Jesus. Open our eyes to take in this wonderful picture of Jesus. Open our hearts to, to receive it. Open our minds to understand it. And let us be moved to awe the greatness and the glory and the majesty of our God and Savior. For it's in His name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Now Isaiah 6 details Isaiah's call to be a prophet. God called Isaiah to serve at a time of transition and decline for the nation of Israel. The time of King Uzziah's reign was one of prosperity, peace, and relative faithfulness to God. But this was all about to change. The people had already begun a descent into depravity. It would only worsen as things went on as time went on. The people were giving themselves over to greed, to indulgence, to drunkenness, to idolatry, sexual immorality. They were mocking what was righteous. They were persecuting those who, because of their faith in God, live righteously. Isaiah was being sent to a people who had once been devoted to God, but had now perverted their value system to the extent that they called evil good and good evil. And as I've said every week we've looked at this, this should all seem very familiar to us. A people once devoted to God, a nation once devoted to God, who are now indifferent, indulgent, and idolatrous. A people once devoted to God who now shared the morality and the immorality of the pagans around them. A people once devoted to God who now mock righteousness and revile those who try to live righteously. A people once devoted to God who had now perverted their value system till they thought evil was good and good was evil. Living in a time like this makes mere faithfulness to Jesus difficult, much less being fully devoted and actively living for Jesus. We in our day need what Isaiah in his day needed. We need to see the greatness and the glory of Jesus. And I say Jesus in this passage, even though it's the Old Testament, because of something we see in the Gospel of John. John chapter 12, John references Isaiah 6 and says what Isaiah saw was Jesus' glory. And what Isaiah wrote about was Jesus. The glorious Lord in this passage is Jesus. This is a vision of Jesus. And we need this vision of Jesus in our day because how we see Jesus determines how we'll live for Jesus. If Jesus is just a guy, if he is just a prophet, 
If he was just a historical figure or he is just a myth, then how we live for him will reflect that's our view of him. But if Jesus is the great and the glorious God we see in this passage, then our lives will reflect we see him this high, this holy and this great. And normally we would look at this passage all at once, but we've broken it down so we can spend more time on each section in the in the previous weeks. First, we we spent time looking at chapter verses one through four, looking at, at who Jesus is and how we ought to see him. And from that, we saw Jesus is great. Jesus is holy and Jesus is worthy. And everything we see in the rest of this chapter flows out of the way we see Jesus. That's why the main point is what it is. Since Isaiah saw Jesus as great and holy and worthy, he recognized the severity of sin. In this moment, for maybe the very first time in his life, Isaiah recognized sin had left him undone. Sin had left him it had, or that sin was a heart issue. It wasn't just something he did. It was something deep in his heart. And sin was pervasive in his culture. When we see Jesus as he is, that's what we'll see about sin as well. It is very severe. It is not a minor thing. It ruins us. It's an issue of our heart. And it's pervasive in the world around us. Recognizing his sin in light of the, the great, the glorious and the holy Jesus. Isaiah also saw his need for salvation. Seeing Jesus revealed the need for salvation. Once Isaiah realized the severity of his sin, something else became abundantly clear. He couldn't fix himself. That's why he said, woe is me. He was undone. He knew there was no way for him to fix himself. He knew there was no way for him to... To make himself right. He was under the judgment of God. He was rightly under the judgment of God. And there was nothing he could do to get out from underneath it. But God seeing Isaiah's contrition and Isaiah's recognition of his sin. Sent an angel to touch his lips and to symbolically cleanse him. To purge him of his sin and to make atonement for it. When we see Jesus as he is we recognize we cannot save ourselves. We recognize our sin is severe. We are under the judgment of God, rightly so. And we can't fix it. We can't make it right. Only Jesus can save us. Only Jesus can purge our sin. But in the light of this, we also not only see that we need Jesus desperately, but everyone else does as well. The sin of the culture, the sin of the world is abundantly clear in the light of a holy Jesus. And they are too under the judgment of God. And they cannot get themselves out from underneath it. They must have Jesus. For only Jesus can purge their sin as well. Everyone everywhere needs Jesus. And this leads to the third revelation from seeing Jesus. Seeing Jesus reveals the necessity of the mission. After being cleansed. By God, Isaiah hears the voice of God. Whom shall I send and and who will go for us? And without hesitation, Isaiah replies, here am I. Send me. Isaiah had an overwhelming desire to serve this great and merciful God who had forgiven his sin. After seeing the, the holiness and the majesty and the power of Jesus, 
Isaiah realizes that above all else in life, he wants to serve Jesus. Notice, he doesn't know what the mission is. That there's no indication. Whom shall I send and who will go and do what? Say what? Be what? Doesn't matter, Isaiah says. I want to be the one. Pick me. Pick me. If the great God, if the great and the glorious one I'm seeing, if he will let me be on his team and go to serve him, I will do it no matter what it is. Now for Isaiah, this was not going to be an easy or a fun mission for him to go on. The Lord tells him to go and he's going to tell the people something. He's going to tell them, keep listening, but they're not ever going to understand. Keep looking. They're never going to really understand. They're not really going to gain the knowledge they need. Isaiah is going to to preach and teach. And in the process, the hearts of the people will be made fat. Some translations say are insensitive. Their ears will become dull. Their eyes will become blind. So they will not see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts. Return to the Lord and be healed. Essentially, Isaiah is going to be sent to preach a message of repentance to a people who will not repent. They are not going to turn to the Lord. They are not going to listen to what Isaiah has to say. He is going to go and serve the Lord amongst the people whose hearts are already hardened, whose eyes are already blind, whose ears are already deaf. And they are not going to listen. They are not going to like and they are not going to turn back to God by and large. So Isaiah asked what I think would be a natural question. Wow, not what I expected. How long? How long am I going to preach this message and do this ministry and and nobody apparently turn? Until cities are devastated and without inhabitant. Houses are without people. The land is utterly desolate. So the Lord has completely removed the people. And there are many forsaken places in the midst of the land. In other words, it will be a very, very long time. Only Daniel the prophet served longer than Isaiah. Isaiah served for close to 50 years in all. There were five kings who reigned during the time of Isaiah's ministry. Isaiah faithfully served Jesus in a hard position, doing a hard job for a very, very long time. And a question we should always ask when we read this, because we're familiar with all of this. The question for us, how would we have responded? If we heard the Lord say, whom shall I send and who will go for us? What would we have done? Would we have responded as, as eagerly as Isaiah did? Me, I'll go anywhere, I'll do anything. If if you want me on your team, I'm on your team, no matter what that is. Or would we have looked around and waited to see if anybody else volunteered? And if they didn't, then say, well, I guess, I guess I'll do it. I guess I'll go. You know, sadly, there are many Christians who see serving Jesus as a a burden to be born, a hardship. To be endured. Just one more thing to add to an already busy and complicated life. But this isn't the way it's meant to be. Serve the Lord with jubilation. Come before Him with rejoicing. Serving Jesus is is meant to be a source of joy. 
and excitement in our lives. It should be something we rejoice in getting to do. It should not be something we have to do. And we we all know the difference, right, between we get to and we have to. It should be something we get to do despite the fact Isaiah's example is is likely to be ours. In Guyman, Goodwell, Hooker, Texoma, hearts are hard. Ears are closed. Eyes are blind. Now, not about all things, but hearts are certainly hard to the gospel around these parts. Ears are closed to the gospel around these parts. Eyes are blinded to their need for Jesus around here. People here, they don't understand. They see what you're saying, but they don't gain the knowledge that leads them to embrace Christ as Savior. People don't turn to the Lord and be healed. I I mean, I've known it always since we've been here. But it was made especially clear to me when I was a hospice chaplain. You think hospice. I mean, they're just days away from meeting Jesus. And so I'm thinking, if they're not sure, they're crossing the line and coming to Jesus. But you know they didn't. People whose hearts were hard, whose ears were closed, whose eyes were blind, they didn't see any more need for Jesus at the Days before their death. Knowing, I mean, that they know they're dying. This isn't a possibility. This isn't like they're going on a flight and and it might crash. This is, I mean, you are literally days. I mean, you could close your eyes tonight and tomorrow you're there. And it was just, I'm fine. It is what it is at this point. So you take that at that moment of death and you just look at healthy people. Prosperous people. And what do you find? The same thing. I mean, if the the needy dying people in our area don't see it, the healthy, prosperous people certainly don't. But it's not just here. It's everywhere. I mean, no matter where the gospel goes, hearts are hard. Ears are deaf. Eyes are blind. People will hear and not understand. They'll see but won't gain the knowledge People won't turn to the Lord and be healed. If we're going to reach our communities, if we're going to reach Guyman and Goodwill and Hooker and Texoma, the nations for Jesus will have to have the same sort of commitment Isaiah had to serve in a hard and an unpopular position For a very long time. Because the reality is, even if let's say we all picked one person, we're going to reach for Jesus. And we went to them tomorrow and shared the gospel with them. What what is the likelihood they're going to turn to Jesus tomorrow and be saved? Well, it's unlikely. I mean, I I just, to, to prove this, I would just say, think about your own life. How many times did you hear the gospel Before it sunk into you that you needed Jesus. Quite a bit for me. 
Very few people hear the gospel once and get saved. Now, I'm not saying none do. Some do. But statistically, it's like, oh, I don't know. I'm making up a number now, but it's, it's a couple. It's quite a few times people have to hear before it begins to sink in. So if we set out to reach one person and we've got that one person in our mind and we go to them tomorrow, they're not likely to turn to Jesus tomorrow. So we have a choice. We can quit discouragement or we can continue to look for opportunities, continue to try to reach them. Then if you take that by just opportunities that come up in our lives, multiply it by that, it's a long, hard. At the moment, the projection, unpopular, that's what we're called to. We're not called to a life of ease. We're not called to only do what makes us comfortable. We're not called to only do the things that are easy. We're, we're called, much as Isaiah is, to go to a sinful culture, take an unpopular message, share it with them, and urge them to repent of their sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. So a question we would ask is, why would we do this? Why would we take an unpopular message to a hard-hearted, deaf, and blind people? Well, the answer is what we see in this passage. Jesus is worthy. Jesus is worthy. This is the point of the passage. Isaiah saw Jesus, and seeing Jesus changed everything. Since Jesus is great, holy, and worthy, Isaiah will give his life to doing what Jesus wants him to do. Seeing Jesus revealed the depths of sin, the absolute necessity of salvation through Jesus. So Isaiah would give his life to calling on people to repent and believe. Jesus is worthy. But it's not just a general Jesus is worthy. Jesus is worthy of our lives. Jesus is worthy of us giving our lives to serve. Since He is great and holy and worthy, we should willingly, joyfully give our lives to do whatever Jesus wants us to do. When we see Jesus, it reveals the depths of our sin. The absolute necessity of salvation through Jesus. And when we are saved, we know it is only by the grace of God, through the blood of Christ, we have been saved and spared from the wrath to come. And if He would do that for us, what wouldn't we do for Him? This is what we do. We see He's great and glorious. We see our sin. We receive His cleansing. And now He's like, who will go? And we are all like Isaiah saying, me, send me, pick me, I'll do anything you want me to do for as long as you want me to do it. No matter what that would be. This seeing Jesus and he's greater than everything and more worthy than everything and we would give our lives from him. It is a constant theme in scripture. The apostle Paul said, whatever things were gained to me. These things I have counted as loss because of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in the view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them mere rubbish that I may gain Christ 
be found in him, having a righteousness, not of my not having a righteousness of my own, derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Paul had a value system all of his life. He was a Jewish man, he was raised to be a Pharisee, and what he valued was his Jewishness, and what he valued was his personal righteousness that he earned. His family name, his family tribe, his adherence to the law. But then there came a day where his values changed. And what he once considered such gain, he now counted as loss and had given them up. And Paul's value system changed because he met Jesus. Having seen the glory and the greatness and the goodness of Jesus. Having realized the depths of his own sin despite his outward acts of righteousness. Having been forgiven and chosen by the living Christ. Paul sacrificed it all. Jesus was worth more. Those things were all useless, worse than useless to him. Because not only did they not help him, this this personal righteousness he felt actually served to keep him from knowing Jesus. And after meeting Jesus, he willingly sacrificed his all to know Jesus. Jesus was worth more. Jesus was worthy of everything. But it wasn't just his own works and his own goodness and his own righteousness Paul counted as loss. It was all things. Notice the, the contrast in the words he has counted as loss. But then I count as loss. And then later count them but mere rubbish. When Paul says he counted all things as loss. He was talking about a specific moment in time. When he met Jesus. And he saw the greatness of Christ. And he said he is worth more than all of this stuff I have. And in that moment, he said, Jesus is worth more. But then he says, I count. It's continuing tense. Paul not only counted all things but loss for the sake of Christ, he continually counted all things as a loss for the sake of Christ. Paul did not make a one-time decision and say, Jesus is more valuable than anything I have. Paul made this decision day after day after day. Paul's life, the way he lived and what he did, was a continual recognition. Jesus is greater than anything else. And so he continually sacrificed anything, keeping him from knowing Jesus better and doing what Jesus wanted him to do. If Jesus wanted him to do it, he would do it. If this, whatever this might be, hindered him or slowed him down, he would let that go so that he could do what Jesus wanted him to do. The way it's worded, these things had not been taken from Paul by force. Rather, he had cast these things away willingly because Jesus was better than any of these things. These things were not jerked. Out of his hand and he lost them. He held them tightly in his hand. And then he saw Jesus. And then he looked at them. And he threw them down. Threw them away. And left. 
He had cast them off. And all things literally meant all things. Paul lost his job. Paul lost his personal sense of righteousness. Paul lost the plans he had for his own life moving forward. Paul lost his family connections. Paul lost his standing in the community. I mean, Paul lost all things. And in the end, what Paul had after making this decision was Jesus. Not his personal righteousness. Not his family connections. Not his reputation in the community. He literally just had Jesus. And Paul thought he had made the best deal ever. He did not for a moment regret this decision. He did not for a moment try to go back on this decision. It was a decision he had made once and he continually made day after day after day. To such an extent that he counted them as mere rubbish. The King James says dung. Uh, These things went from being Paul's treasured possessions to being the worst sort of rubbish as far as Paul was concerned. That's a, that is quite the value change. So with this, what we see is Paul did not make this shift. And then, yeah, I better keep following Jesus. But, ugh, I miss all that stuff. Didn't. He had Jesus. And in comparison to Jesus, that stuff was the worst sort of rubbish. It was like dumb. I mean, it was just, it was useless. It was worse than useless. It was just nothing in comparison to Jesus. The surpassing value of knowing Jesus was greater than all. Now, the surpassing value of knowing Jesus is more than just knowing about Jesus. It is knowing him, having a relationship with him, growing in the knowledge of Jesus. And again, in Paul's mind, compared to knowing Jesus, everything and, and anything else was just rubbish in comparison to having a genuine relationship to Jesus. Everything we've seen from Isaiah in this passage, everything we have seen from Isaiah in the previous weeks, right? Isaiah's call, obviously Isaiah, the book of Isaiah is not in chronological order. So we've already looked at some of the stuff Isaiah did after his call in chapters 1 through 5. All the stuff he did there. All the stuff he's doing here. All the stuff we're going to read about him doing later on. He does. Because he knew Jesus was worthy. He knew the God he had seen was greater than anything he had. Anything he could give up. Anything he might lose. Everything was because of Jesus. Everything we know about what Paul did. And how Paul lived was done because he had seen Jesus. And he knew Jesus was worthy. Of Paul giving up everything in his life to serve Jesus. So again, the question is now a personal one. What about us? Does our view of Jesus lead us to value Jesus in this way? That we would consider everything else in this world just dumb in comparison to knowing Christ. Having a relationship with him to the extent that we would give our lives to do whatever he wanted us to do any time, any moment. And what would be easy for us to do would be to say, I mean, this is Isaiah. He's called to be a prophet. 
That was Paul. He's called to be an apostle. I'm not either of those things. I'm just a person called to be a person. The problem with this is this isn't what we see in God's Word. There isn't this separate sort of cost associated for apostles and prophets that there is for regular people. Right? Look at what Jesus said. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and hid again from joy. Over it he goes and sells everything he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold everything he had and bought it. Two pearls, two pearls, two parables, one point. point is this. What we find in Jesus is of greater value than anything we currently possess or anything we could ever acquire. Jesus is worth losing or sacrificing everything else to gain. This is just a regular story for regular people Jesus is telling to his disciples. Something important to recognize from this parable, from Isaiah, from Paul, from Moses. These sacrifices weren't made grudgingly. The man in the story, he didn't find the treasure in the field and then gripe. Because he had taken a shortcut and he knew that was a bad thing to do. But now he's taking a shortcut and now he's found that he has to sell everything and get the field. No, he, he goes for joy. With joy he sells everything to acquire the field. Isaiah is not griping. Isaiah is not grudgingly making the sacrifice. The apostle Paul did not grudgingly go along. They joyfully gave their all in service to Jesus because they saw Jesus. And Jesus was greater than anything this world has to offer. This is what they realized. All they had was stuff. But what they had found was was God in the person of Jesus Christ. All we have Stuff, perishable stuff, stuff that depreciates in value, stuff that may not be as important as we think it is anyway. And what's offered to us is God in the person of Jesus Christ. The ability to know him intimately, not just know about him, but know him. Have a relationship with Him. Do things to honor Him, to glorify Him. Do His will in a lost and a dying world. Help people come to know Him. These stories are meant to remind us of the greatness of Jesus. They're meant to remind us that Jesus is greater than anything else. The idea with them is when we meet Jesus, we're so amazed that we can know Him. And have His righteousness. That everything else this world has and everything else this world offers is just rubbish in comparison. And so we willingly give our lives to do whatever He wants us to do for however long He wants us to do it. And how we see Jesus determines how we'll live for Jesus. Jesus is worthy 
of our lives. But Jesus is not only worthy of our lives, but when we talk about going to others, Jesus is worthy of their worship. Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exists because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. The goal of missions is the gladness of the peoples and the greatness of God. So says John Piper in the introduction to his book, Let the Nations Be Glad. And he is, I believe, exactly right. The goal of mission, whether it's international missions or local mission, is not to secure prayers. It's not to secure boxes checked. It is to produce worshipers. Not people who make a profession of faith in Jesus and continue to live as they have. But a people who come to know Jesus and they begin to value Jesus in such a way that they give their lives to serve him. That they worship Jesus. We go on mission in our community to help people become worshipers of Jesus. We pay money to send missionaries to the ends of the earth so they can go to those people and they can lead them to not only have a profession about Jesus, to know about Jesus, but to become worshipers of Jesus. We see this idea often in the Psalms. This is a the best example of it. Tell of his glory among the nations, his wonderful deeds among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For the gods of the peoples are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. We are to declare God's glory among the nations. This is what worshipers do. We not only worship Jesus by singing songs in church, but by telling others how good and great and glorious Jesus is. Jesus is glorified when we declare his salvation to the nations. Whether Again, whether it's the nations way over there or the nations right out here. Jesus is further glorified when these people begin to worship him. And then they declare his glory in their lives. Not only is Jesus glorified when people worship him, but and this is the, the point I'm getting to. Jesus is worthy of their worship. We embrace the mission of Jesus to ensure all people and all nations get a chance to hear the message of Jesus. Because Jesus is great. Jesus is greatly to be praised. And because Jesus alone deserves worship. There are no other so-called gods in the world who deserve our or anyone else's worship. God alone, Yahweh alone, Jesus alone deserves worship. No other God deserves worship because all the other gods are idols. The word for idols carries with it the idea of being weak and worthless because it's nothing. It's a perfect picture. Of all the other so-called gods in our world. They are weak. They are worthless. They are nothing. The God of Islam is, is nothing. The God of Mormonism is nothing. The God of Jehovah's Witnesses is nothing. The God of Scientology is nothing. The God of New Age Spiritism is nothing. 
The God of Buddhism is nothing. The God of wokeness is nothing. The God of politics is nothing. Therefore, they do not deserve anyone's praise, anyone's worship, or anyone's devotion. Not from one person anywhere in the world. Only Jesus is worthy of the worship of these people, of all people. We embrace the mission of ensuring all people and all nations get a chance to hear the gospel because Jesus alone deserves everyone's worship. We proclaim the good news of Jesus' salvation to all people and all nations because Jesus deserves their worship. We want all peoples and all nations to experience Jesus' salvation so they can give him the glory and praise he alone deserves. There are people all around Gaiman and Goodwill, Hooker, Texoma, to the ends of the earth, who do not know and they do not worship the one true God. The Lord God of heaven, Jesus. And Jesus deserves to be worshipped and glorified by every single one of them. Once again, this flows out of how we see Jesus. If we see him as great and holy and worthy, we'll see him and only him as worthy of everyone's worship. If because of the way we see Jesus, we understand the severity of sin, the absolute necessity of salvation through faith in Jesus, then we'll understand how desperately all people truly are for Jesus. For only Jesus can save. Not morality, not religion, just Jesus. And so he deserves their worship. He is worthy of their worship. And so we give our lives to do everything we can to help them become worshipers. The one true God, the Lord of heaven, Jesus Christ. But how we see Jesus determines how we'll live for Jesus. Before we will give our lives for Jesus. Before we will see him as being worthy of of everyone's worship, we have to see him as he is. As holy, as glorious, as worthy. Everything in this passage flows out of Isaiah's vision of Jesus. And once he saw how great Jesus was, how glorious Jesus was, how holy Jesus was, how worthy Jesus was, Everything else that happened, happened. This is where it has to start with us. Trying harder is is not going to work. We, We can't just try harder. This isn't an issue of we're not trying properly. It's an issue of we're not seeing properly. We must see Jesus As he is. Listen. I am convinced this is a key. In the moving forward. Of what's coming. I don't know what's coming. I'm not a prophet nor the son of a prophet. I don't know what the future holds. But if what I think. Is coming is coming. It is not going to be pretty. And not only is it. I don't mean like hardship and difficulty necessarily. But every day, every day brings some 
pastor, some church, some Christian organization exposed for doing the most horrific, god-awful things. And if our, our faith, our life is not firmly in Christ and who He is, it will destroy our faith. Seeing so many Christians fall, so many churches destroyed, so many organizations have covered up and done wicked things. But if our faith is in Christ and Christ alone, if we see that Christ is great and glorious and worthy, then though all fall aside, we will persevere. Though it get difficult, we will keep going. Though our efforts are fruitless, it seems, we will not give up. It is... I believe desperately important for us to see Jesus as He is. So we must pray and we must cry out for God to open our eyes to this. For God to open our minds to see it as clearly as Isaiah did. I'm not talking about praying for a vision. I'm talking about praying for the Holy Spirit to drive this picture of Jesus home into our hearts and home into our minds. That's what He does. He's the revealer of truth who leads us into all truth, who reveals the deep things of God to us, who renews our mind and gives us the mind of Christ. All of that is in the Bible. This is what the Holy Spirit does, and we are desperate in need of Him to do this in our minds, in our hearts. Because how we see Jesus is going to determine how we live for Jesus. And we must see Him as He is. I I do not believe. I do not believe people going forward will remain faithful to the end if they do not have a high view of Jesus. It is just going to get too costly. Too difficult. And if Jesus is not the worthy one, we're going to give up. If we want to be faithful to the end, we must see Jesus as He is. And so let's begin to pray the Holy Spirit to open our minds, open our hearts to see Jesus as He really is.